you turn, we're going to finish up First Thessalonians today, so the remaining verses here uh, in chapter 5, so verses 17 to 28, and it's really a conclusion. Uh, Paul is reiterating truths that he's already spoken. Uh, we'll return to three things first that we saw, or at least read last week, and, and then we're going to turn our attention to the communion table. Now, when Jesus passed along communion to the church, he actually said, as often as you do this, meaning communion, do it in remembrance of me. So this is actually a memorial supper. It is Memorial Day, and it's the greatest Memorial Day uh, that anyone could ever celebrate because this one is eternal in nature. The one that we celebrate as a nation is temporal. It's tied to this earth. This one is eternal. As we turn our attention there later in the service in a few moments, I want to remind you that the Lord's Supper is for the Lord's people. It belongs to the body of Christ. And he was speaking to the disciples when he instituted it. So please remind yourselves that if you're here today and you have not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you do not know him personally, you can square that away before these elements come to you. Because Jesus said, all one need do is believe on his name and you will be saved. And so it's believing that Jesus Christ is God's own son come in human flesh. He lived on this earth for 32 years. He led a sinless life. He was crucified on Calvary's cross. He was laid in a grave for three days. He was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit just those three days later. And he lives forevermore to make intercession. For us, and it is through his life, death, burial, and resurrection that we can experience eternal life. All you need to do is ask him to be your savior, and he will do that. So please do that if you have not. If you choose to simply say, maybe this isn't for me, then I would ask you, because it's a serious thing, Paul would write to the church at Corinth and actually remind them, that we're not to partake in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And so please just allow the elements to pass you by. You're under no obligation to partake of them today. But please don't partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. In other words, if you haven't honored him with your life, then don't pretend by taking communion. Verse 16 says, Rejoice always. The only way that that could possibly be true is not because of our circumstances, amen? Because there's a whole lot of things that go on in everyone's life and everyone's world, in the world in general, and always has gone on in the world in general that is not worthy of rejoicing. So there must be some other thing that the Lord is speaking through the Apostle Paul and that other thing is none other than our place in Christ Jesus. And so would you pray with me and let's ask God to speak through his word. Heavenly Father, we have again come and gathered together in this place for the purpose of studying your word. And so we pray that your word would be alive to us, that by the spirit you would speak your truths into our hearts. Pray that no thing would be said that hinders that. Pray that your word would speak for itself. And so we bless you, we praise you and ask now that as we prepare our hearts for communion, that you would allow your word to do its work in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. And so he says, rejoice always. And, and, and when you see that, as I, as I just got through sharing on Thursday night, and again, this is not to, you know, cajole you, but to simply say, uh, we're in the book of Romans on Thursday night, probably the greatest book in the entire New Testament with regard to doctrinal content for helping us live our lives according to the principles found in Scripture. But I shared on Romans 8.28, a very favorite verse for many people. Uh, it probably is half the world's uh, favorite verse if you're a Christian. For all things work together for the good to those who are the called according to his purposes. Amen? And so the only way you can actually live out this rejoicing is if you believe that. Because not everything is good. Amen? So what the Apostle Paul was saying there in Romans 8 was, in the hands of a sovereign God who must either be the cause of all things or who has allowed all things to occur, because he's not sovereign if those things are not true. He either physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually caused it or he's allowed that to happen. Either way, your Bible says he synergizes or works all things together for the good, but to those who are God's kids. Called according to his purposes. It doesn't say the whole world sees it that way. It says God's kids see it that way and should live it that way. And so to rejoice always is to actually acknowledge who God is. It's to say, God, I trust you with all things. Every storm, every good thing, every bad thing, because I know you will work them together somehow in your masterful plan that is absolutely 100% sovereign, that is built upon your love for me. Not just his sovereignty, but his love. For God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. Amen? He didn't send Jesus into the world because he was mad at the world. He didn't send Jesus into the world because the world really needed instruction. He sent Jesus into the world because God so loved the world. And so the rejoicing person is a person who knows that. The rejoicing person is a person who believes that. And so it begins by saying rejoice always. The very same thing that the Apostle James would write in James chapter 1. You, you see, you cannot count it all joy. You can't put it in the right box unless you know the one who makes it all work together for your good. Otherwise, evil things just simply remain evil. But in the hands of a loving God, even evil things can work out to your good. And so make sure you get that. How many of you have a cell phone for the next thing? How, raise your hand. you got a smartphone. Put your hand up. Come on. Come on. Get your hands up. It's most of you, right? On your cell phone, do you not have a function on there that is the hands-free function? Amen? The reason that's important, because y'all need to stop talking on the phone while you're driving. Because I'm going down PCH, and this is what I see. You're supposed to use the hands-free function. Use your Bluetooth. You're supposed to be able to just talk at it, not with it. Amen? Now, why am I telling you that? Because your prayer life should be like the hands-free function on your phone. You should always have your phone line open to God. So that when you're talking, you're talking with him all the time. 
Now, for us human beings talking to others, you don't want to have your mom on hands-free, okay? Because you're going to say things she's not going to like. She's going to be up in here in your grill. But here's what's going to happen with God. He's going to understand why you said what you said and how you said what you said. He's going to know why everything about it. So you can pray without ceasing. You can just talk to God. Because here's what I don't want you to do. Trying to squeeze yourself underneath the dashboard while you're driving so that you can pray without ceasing on your knees. That's not what it means. It means that God wants to talk to you. God loves hearing from his children. And so you put your heavenly speakerphone on and you leave it on and you make sure you're talking to God 24 hours a day. While you're awake, if you're able, you talk to him. Pray without ceasing. Pray all the time. Just say, God, you know, I, I, right, left, it's your call. And when he speaks, do it. You'd be surprised how many traffic jams you miss when you actually do that. You, you see, sometimes we limit our praying to those things that we think really matter. Everything matters to God. Your whole life matters to God. He sent Jesus to this world to redeem your whole life back to God. So pray without ceasing. And see, the third thing here, verse 18, and in everything gives thanks, also only makes sense if you're giving thanks because of who God is, not because of the thing. You can't, if, if you lose an eye, God's not expecting you to go, thank you, Lord, you took my eye. That's not what it's saying. Because losing your eyes is a bad thing. You need two of them. You, you know, you can't focus all that well if you have one. If anything, it's bad. That's a bad thing. But what it is saying is you can rejoice because God must have some eternal purpose or he would have never allowed that to happen to you. He's not mean. And he can surely stop anything and everything, and he can cause anything and everything. So either way, whether he caused it or he allowed it, God is bound by his own character to use it for good. And so you can give thanks in everything, not because I'm happy this disaster happened, this storm came, because I know the God who's going to use this storm in my life for some purpose that perhaps today I cannot see. When someone dies, you're not likely to know exactly at that moment why the Lord chose to take them home. But because you know him, you know some things about him, and he is eternally good towards his children. Remember, this is his kids that think this way. The world does not think this way, nor can they think this way, because they do not know him. Spiritual things are spiritually appraised. Scripture says the carnal mind can't know the things of God. So they're not going to see it that way. They're just going to see the problem. They're going to see the issue. They're going to see the good. They're going to see the bad. They're going to base their thoughts about those things on the circumstance and situation and not on the character of God. But you can determine their value basing it on the character of God and how he would be able to use these things. So you can, in fact, in everything, give thanks. Hallelujah. Now, when you say that, remember what you're saying. It's so important. That's to the God who uses everything for your good. It says all things. Amen? Do you know how that verse verse 28 of, of Romans 8 begins? And we 
No. Do you know why it says that? Because we know it. It's not might be, not be, not maybe, not if God's feeling good about it. Not if he bears witness to whatever you're thinking. And we know that all things, so you can rejoice. He concludes now, would you look down to verse 19. And I, I believe we can treat this as it was originally written as a conclusion to what's already been said. In verse 19, he goes on to give us really uh, five additional keys, points that we could uh, highlight one by one, but they're really meant to be taken together because they're, they're put together in that way. Do not quench the spirit. I notice there's some do nots and some do's here. And do not despise prophecies. Test all things, hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And now may the God of peace, you see, This only applies to the people who understand who the God of peace is. People who don't know God don't get this this way. Matter of fact, they're going to think you're completely crazy when you say God works all things together for the good. Well, it's not possible. Sure it is. But they're not going to understand that. And so it says, now may the God of peace, the one who's the peace in the storm, not from the storm, don't misunderstand what Scripture says and teaches. God does not keep you out of every storm. Matter of fact, God pushed the disciples intentionally into a storm. He knew the storm was coming. He says, you guys need to know this. See you on the other side. I'm going to walk out to you, by the way. They're over there bailing water out. Oh, he hates us. Oh, the Lord Jesus knew exactly what they needed to to have. In their hearts, in their minds, they needed a truth, and they didn't have that truth, and the storm was a way to that truth. Hallelujah? That's what he does. That's what he does. He knows what storms you need. And so he says, now may the God of peace, the one who can calm the raging wind and the waves, every storm, if that's what he wants to do, he can do it. The God of peace himself sanctify you completely. In other words, bring you from your salvation to maturation and glorification through sanctification. You get the process, you got saved, you're becoming more like Jesus, you get over here, you're matured, and now all of a sudden the end of that sanctification ends up you being glorified and eventually going right to where Jesus is, just like God. Not God, but heavenly like him. He'll bring you home, in other words. He who began that good work in you is faithful to complete it unto... The day of Christ Jesus, amen? Same truth. And may your whole spirit, your soul, your body, all that's you, your mind, your soul, your body, everything that's you, be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be awesome if when the Lord comes, there is no thing that could be said negative about you and I? That's God's plan. He wants to preserve us completely faultless before his throne of grace. And one day he will actually deliver us that way. It'd be really awesome if God didn't have to do much work at the end of our lives. Amen? That's the picture, that we're more like Jesus. So much so that there's not a whole lot to change when you take your last breath. Some of us, it's like God's going to really have to dunk us in some heavy-duty cleanser. 
And then some of us is like, hey, I'm pretty close. I want to be really close when the Lord comes for his church. For he who calls you is faithful. You know, as Paul would write to Timothy in his second letter, in the second chapter, you know what he says? For he is faithful even when we are faithless. He cannot. He goes on to say, deny himself. What's the focus of that? God's faithful, period. He's never unfaithful. You probably all know what it's like to have an unfaithful person in your life. Maybe an unfaithful friend, unfaithful family member, perhaps an unfaithful spouse. Maybe there's been some unfaithfulness and you've witnessed it. You will never, ever, ever experience unfaithfulness from God. What he has said he will accomplish. And if he has purpose to will and to do it, it will be done and shall be done. He's faithful. He's reminding us of who we are and what we can expect. And he goes on just to confirm it, who also will do it. In other words, it's not on you to get jobs done that God's supposed to do. It's God's job to get his stuff done. Amen? The reason you need to know that is too many people try and accomplish in the flesh that which was begun in the spirit. You you can't do what God can do, but God absolutely can do what God wants to do in your life. And so if he says he's going to do it, let him do it. And be careful about trying to help him out, because sometimes we're not very good at helping God out. Amen? Rest and trust in what God has promised to do in your life. Brethren, pray for us. In Jesus' name, please pray for me. Pray for each other. Pray for us. Pray for the church. Pray and then pray some more. That's why it says pray without ceasing. Pray, 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 pray. Please, in Jesus' name, as your pastor, pray more, talk less. And I see, I I love you. But there's an awful lot of talking that if it was spent, that that time was spent praying, it'd have an eternal value instead of a temporal one. And sometimes that temporal one is not a good value. It's actually a bad value because we've actually given God something else to deal with because we've simply talked about it instead of talked to God about it. Talk to God about it. You know, he actually is able. If he needs to square away people, he generally can do that pretty well. And he does it a lot better than we do. So if we pray for people with whom we have some issue, instead of talking about them, you're going to find that God just gets into their life and just twists the things that need to be twisted and does the thing that needs to be done. Pray for us. Read all the brethren with a holy kiss. I love this. This is the Eastern culture. It's still this way in the Middle East today. Men will still greet one another generally with a holy kiss, one on each cheek. It was normal then. We do the same thing today with a hug. We do that with a handshake. But it's real. How many of you, when you get to the family function, you know, and I realize we all have some people in our family we kind of wish would get adopted by some other family. <laughs> but for the most part, when we get together with family, you see your mom, your dad, your aunt, your uncles, your cousin. Do you go, hey, what's up? Yeah. No, you go running up, you put a hug on their neck, you say hi. It's like, man, it's so good to see you. It's been too long. That's what family does, right? You know what he's saying? He's saying, why don't you let your love be real? 
and actually show the world that you really love each other. Because Jesus actually already told us, by this all men will actually know that you are my disciples if you have love, agape love, one for another. In other words, live it out, act it out, make sure that people can see it because what they see they believe. They don't necessarily believe how you talk. They will believe what you do over what you say every time. So when the church actually looks like they love each other, it's a big deal to God. And it's a big deal to the world because they're looking at us to see if it's real. Quinn, you know what? I can't believe it. Across all of these different socioeconomic and, and racial guidelines, these people are all loving on each other. What in the world is that all about? And we go, Jesus. <laughs> Amen? It's real. He's talking to the family. He's saying, hey, you know, we're a loving family. We actually love each other. Now, having said that, there'll be no holy smooching in the foyer. <laughs> keep it, you know, keep it real. Do I got to admit, I love it. I, I love the fact that you love on each other. And you love on me. And I get to love on you. It's a blessing. Amen? I charge you by the Lord that in this epistle it be read to all of the holy brethren. You know, the only way we're holy, your holiness comes from God, amen? So he's, he's talking about the family. He's talking about the brothers and sisters. Read it. You see, they had to actually read this one letter. We can actually just read the letter because we actually have a copy of it. And so he's saying, look, this, this word is not just for a small group uh, back in this little tiny Greek town uh, in, in the middle of the the corner of the Aegean Sea on the coast of modern-day Greece, he's saying, look, this is for all the body of Christ. Read this in the church and do what it says. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And so as we wrap these things up, let me encapsulate this this way. This is just some final family instructions. He says, look, don't, don't put out the fire of God in people's lives. I'm sure you've probably met some of those people who kind of, they make it their mission to quench whatever the Lord is doing wherever. If someone's actually on fire for the Lord, they have a problem with how they're doing whatever it is the Lord has them uh, doing. They have a critical spirit. You can spot them. You're saying, please don't quench the spirit. Let the spirit do its work. And you know what? We're not perfect at implementing that, any of us. And so it may look a little different in one church versus another church, but let the Spirit work in the church. Amen? Don't stifle it. Don't douse it. Don't pour water on it. Throw some gas on it. You know? Let it go up in a ball of flames. I, I, you know what? Here's the deal. I'd rather burn out than rust. So let, let's go out in a ball of glory. Amen? Let's let the Holy Spirit do whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do. Stifle those gifts. Don't despise prophecies. And in the context of of how this is written, what it's really saying is, is when God speaks, do what he says. Now, during that day and time, there were prophets, a couple of them still left in the church. The prophetic office was most visible in the Old Testament days, still visible in our world. Sometimes God gives people a word from the Lord. But it's fairly rare. I can tell you what God does do that is also a type of prophetic work. 
And that's he speaks forth what he has already spoken, which is his word. Why do I know that? Because an Old Testament prophet, when they spoke, they were speaking what God spoke to them. So if God spoke these words into existence the first time, for you to speak them forth is to use the word prophetically. You're speaking into someone's life. And so chiefly in our day and time, not that God won't necessarily give you a word of prophecy for someone, but be careful, because if you read Deuteronomy 18, uh, you don't want what comes to a false prophet. So be careful how many times you say, thus saith the Lord. Uh, I've run into a lot of people They have written me letters. They have spoken to my face. They have said, thus says the Lord. You're doing this. You're doing that. You're destroying the church. I've had pretty much every kind of thing said to me that you can imagine. And unfortunately, most of those folks have been proven to be a false prophet because I'm still here and they're not. I don't say that pridefully. I'm just saying The Bible says in Deuteronomy 18, when a prophet speaks a word and that thing does not come to pass, that person is a false prophet. So be very careful when you come to Pastor Jeff and you say, thus says the Lord. Or you go to your friend, your family, who have been sharing the word with you and they shared the truth and you don't like what the truth says, so you say, thus says the Lord. Be careful on what you lay on the Lord. Because the moment you say that, you now own it. I would rather walk in humility and say, you know, I'm pretty sure the Bible teaches this, but I could be in error. So if I'm in error, let the Lord change my heart. If you're in error, let the Lord change your heart. But avoid the thus says the Lord thing. There's an awful lot of books out there that are pretty much thus says the Lord. You know what happens? Thus not says the Lord, and hence those folks are now looking like fools. You you know a few of them. Joseph Smith. Said, thus says the Lord. He's gone, and about three-quarters of the stuff he said would happen not only didn't happen, the exact opposite happened. So be careful. Don't despise prophecies. Test all things and hold fast to what is good. You're to test things by the word of God. And that doesn't mean you sit around and you jot down notes and you you figure out what you can say to me after service to try and give me the gotcha question. No, you, you just test the, the word of the Lord. And you go read it in context and, and see if what has been said is true. That's not a difference of opinion. That's the central truth of what's been said. You know, we, we can disagree about the timing of the rapture. We can disagree about the timing of the return of the Lord. But what we can't disagree about is Jesus is coming again. Amen? That's a truth. So whether I think it's coming, you know, two years from now and you think it's eight years from now and somebody thinks it's next month and another person thinks it's never going to happen, you know, we may all be proven wrong. But we need to remember Jesus is coming again. I happen to believe sooner rather than later. I also happen to believe that the Lord is going to rapture his church home before he comes again. But let's be careful about how we pound on each other with things that may or may not be certain today. You see, the word speaks forth into our lives. And I want to really encourage you. There's really just a couple of things. I'm going to bring the worship team back up. And I'm going to ask the communion team to begin to pass out the elements of communion.
And while they do that, as you receive first the bread and then the cup, I would respectfully ask that you hang on to both elements and we will partake together uh, here in a few moments. But he says, look, here's some final things for us. He says, look, stay out of the dumpster. You need to remember that we're to keep away from every kind of evil and we're to hold fast to that which is good. When he said hold fast to that which is good, it was a nautical term. It meant to batten down the hatches. It meant to prepare your ship to face a storm and to lash everything to the deck. And of course, the biblical implication is take the truth and wrap your life in the truth so that the things on your deck aren't going to get blown overboard. Hold on to that which is true. And at the same time, really abhor that which is evil. The very same truth that Colossians 3 paints for you a little bit differently. It says, put off the old man with all of his deeds and put on the new man. In other words, we're supposed to get rid of the junk out of our lives. And then please don't go back into the dumpster to see if you can find what you threw away last week. (laughs) Amen? Let God actually have those things. We need to make sure that we don't give evil a foothold. Many Christians kind of refuse to take that next step of saying, well, you know, I know God delivered me from this, but I think I'm okay doing it every once in a while. Family of God, that is is asking the enemy to have an opportunity to kick you right through the goalposts of life. You're giving him a foothold. You're allowing something to be in your life that the enemy could use. Keep away from every kind of evil. Do you understand why it says that? Because no evil is a good thing in the life of a believer. So you can either choose to stay away from the trash or you can see if you can peacefully coexist with the garbage. I'm pretty sure most of you, when you throw stuff in a trash bag in your home, you don't then put it in the living room. Is that a safe assumption? I think it is. You know why that is? It stinketh. (laughs) Take the trash out. Get rid of the evil things. Have nothing to do with them. The result of that is the peace that we already talked about in the storm. When the storms come, you don't have a bunch of stuff on the deck of the ship and you're going, I don't know what this is, but man, it's not helping me. I keep tripping over this bag of trash. You need to be ready for the storm because they're going to come. God doesn't promise us deliverance from every storm where you're never going to be buffeted. Jesus made it very clear. In this world, you will have tribulation. He wasn't saying you might, you will. Now, I can't tell you what your tribulation is going to be, but I can tell you you're going to have tribulation. We're not talking about the tribulation. We're talking about tribulations. Those things which come to every single person who's ever walked this earth. Could be a job thing, could be a financial thing, could be a marriage thing, could be a relationship thing. It could be all manner of things, but you're going to be tested. The wind's going to blow, the storm's going to come, the clouds are going to rise up, and you're going to have a tough time seeing because the storm's going to come your way. If you want the peace of God in that storm, not from that storm, then you have to do God's things God's way. Then he's with you in it. If you want to handle the storm yourself, you can. He'll let you do that. But trust me, you don't want want the result of doing that. 
Give him your storms and let him give you the kind of peace that gets you through every storm. And the reason being is you're a citizen of heaven now. Amen? So that's the kind of peace you're looking for. You're not looking for worldly peace. Not just the absence of conflict. You're looking for the type of peace that only God can give. That's what came through the cross. Amen? You see, you were at conflict with God. You were actually at war with God. Your Bible says we were at enmity or war with God. But the Prince of Peace came, fulfilling exactly what Isaiah 9, 6 calls him. He is the Prince of Peace, amen? So he brought a kingdom of peace into view for us and then made it possible for us to be a a part of that citizenship of heaven through receiving his peace. He canceled our debt. You see, we had a huge problem, amen? Before we met Jesus, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. The only way that happens is you have to have your debt paid. So you have God's punishment of Jesus in your hands as the bread. So you don't have to be punished for your sins anymore. Jesus took those and he, his stripes healed you. The chastisement for your peace was put upon him. Exactly as Isaiah 53 says. So as you receive the other element, the cup, we get to this place that we remember, look, he's faithful. God is absolutely 100% faithful. If he says that the broken body and the shed blood of Christ is sufficient because this is the, the penalty and this is the payment. The penalty for living a life apart from God is you should have paid your own price. Your body should have been broken. But Jesus paid that penalty. And then he also gave us the price paid, which is the blood. For without the shedding of blood, whether it's the Old Testament or new, without the shedding of blood, there isn't any remission of sin. You're not forgiven unless the penalty's paid. The blood does that. And so now as we turn our attention to worshiping for a few moments... We're going to sing this one song and then we'll partake together and pray together. Remember, we actually get to show this. We show forth the Lord's death until he comes as we practice this glorious memorial supper that we call communion.